Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Hillsdale is a small Christian college in Michigan that has been described as a citadel of American conservatism. Donald Trump has connections there, as do Ted Cruz, Clarence Thomas, and Betsy DeVos. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis drived his education agenda from Hillsdale. It is ground zero for the critical race theory moral panic. How did this college, with an enrollment of just 1,500 students, become command central for the rights nationwide war against public schools? Let's ask investigative reporter Catherine Joyce to explain the situation. Warm greetings, everybody. We are here with a guest that I've really been wanting to interview for a month or so ever since I read uh, your article. Uh, Catherine Joyce is a investigative reporter, uh, now works for Salon Magazine, and you have uh, you've also written a couple of books, uh, The Child Catchers, Rescuing Trafficking in the New Gospel of Adoption, and Quiverful, Inside the Christian Patriarchy Movement. So maybe we could talk about those a little bit later. Sure. And boy, you were a reporter, a New Yorker, Vanity Fair, uh, Mother Jones, New Republic, and now Salon, and uh, specializing in investigative reporting. Did I get that about right? Uh, just about. I've never, never been in the New Yorker, um, but New York Times Magazine, I, I did. Okay, okay, that way. But very close. Well, there's a lot of, lot of publications with New York in the title. <laughs> okay, now I get confused by that. Good. We're, we're here today uh, talking about your uh, article in the Salon Magazine. There are three uh, uh, sections to this article. It is an investigation of the war on public schools. Um, and it is remarkable. I'm an educator. I, I'm retired as a research director. Uh, we've had other people on regarding education. Um, we had the, the lady that wrote the, the wolf at the schoolhouse, the oh, wolf Jennifer. at the schoolhouse door with Jennifer. She was wonderful. And She's amazing. Uh, and we are excited about what you what your what your series did and 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 how much of it helped I, at least me and I think maybe Greg too get a gestalt an understanding of these uh, political economy and the cultural features that are starting to shape our shape what's going on in the country. T tell us about tell us about your article. Sure. Um, so this this came out a few months back. Um, and it's, it's really looking at the influence of Hillsdale College, uh, which is this quite small, um, extremely conservative Christian private college in Southern Michigan. Um, it's only got about uh, 1500 students at any one time, um, but despite that size, it has a massive impact. Um, it's really become one of the driving forces in conservative politics in general, um, but particularly when it comes to education. And these days, uh, what conservative politics in education means is, you know, I would argue um, a really multifaceted attack on, on the public school system on just about every level. Um, you know, they, they are pushing so many different things at once um, from 
universal voucher programs in Arizona um, to attacks on curriculum everywhere from you know Florida to the rest of the United States. Um, of course, the critical race theory, moral panic, and kind of an associated moral panic around um, you know critical theory in general, which is their new name to to loop um, LGBTQ issues into kind of this this uh, campaign against supposed CRT. So it's happening um, on so many different levels, and uh, Kilsdale College has played a, a pretty significant role in that. Um, both as just kind of an intellectual leader in this space, um, a place where conservative leaders from around the country will come and sort of hash out their plans. Everybody from Christopher Rufo, um, who's the guy who sort of almost single-handedly made the CRT moral panic come to fruition, um, to Richard Corcoran, who was until very recently the education commissioner in Florida, um, who helped push through an awful a lot of the attacks on public education that we saw um, in that state. Uh, but it, they're also doing this um, by means of this, this unique network of publicly funded classical charter schools. And by classical, they mean classical in, in the great books, um, Latin and Greek kind of Western European tradition. Um, and it, it, it sounds kind of like on at first blush, uh, like this, you know, promising alternative for, for people, parents who want their kids to have that kind of education. Um, you know, in, in reality, it is, uh, it's teaching an extremely uh, conservative view of, of US history, um, of the role of religion in, in US history of kind of the significance of Western, quote unquote, Western civilization in general. Um, but it's also part and parcel of all of these larger attacks on, on public education. Um, so we have seen that happen in California, in Florida, um, in Tennessee is kind of the sort of the, the big kind of marquee example of this happening because in the last year, um, Governor Bill Lee in Tennessee announced that he was partnering with Hillsdale College um, to roll out 50 of these new charter schools across Tennessee. Uh, and also to create this new institute for, uh, for civics, American civics, which was going to teach a Hillsdale College informed version of quote unquote informed patriotism. Um, so a, a very conservative take on, on civics. It's just an impression I have, but in this country, unlike other countries, politics is conducted in the schools, over the schools. I mean, you, you have countries in Europe that are uh, predominantly Catholic, and yet they don't carry on politically in the same fashion, I don't think. And the politics, which can often be more divisive, are not conducted in the schools. But why, why is this country, why do people choose to fight their political battles over the schools uh, so much in this country as opposed to other places? Is, is, is there a reason for that? Well, I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely spot on uh, that that is, you know, what is happening. Um, and, and it's acknowledged as such. Um, you know, I mentioned just a moment ago that Hillsdale has become this sort of uh, must-stop, um, you know, location on the conservative speaking tour. They, they draw all kinds of people. And one of the people that they drew in 2021 um, was that Florida Education Commissioner, now, now former Florida Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran, um, and he went and he gave this extremely red meat speech there 
Um, and, and one of the things that he said is that the war is going to be won in education. Uh, if we can get education right, we are going to win it back. Um, and so he's speaking in spring of 2021, um, you know, just a few months after Donald Trump is sort of dragged out of office um, and you know, there is a, a new democratic regime in town. And so he's saying education is the place where, where we can win this battle. Um, and then he goes on in that speech to talk about a lot of things, um, you know, to talk about how uh, if, if Florida, you know, as just one example, if they can get enough children shifted out of public education and into quote unquote school choice, um, which means everything from private schools to, to charter schools to um, these really low cost, very low quality uh, voucher schools that they have in Florida, which is like basically the, the amount of, or the quality of private education you can buy for about six to $7,000, which is what the state would give you, um, which is obviously not an Ivy color covered walls, um, sort of private school that, that you might see on TV. Um, but, you know, he was saying if we can get enough students shifted out of the public education system and into one of these alternatives, then no matter what happens in the future, if a Democratic governor comes in, if Florida's legislature uh, flips to, to being democratically controlled, um, the damage that will have been done to public schools will be so significant that it can't be undone by future administrations. Because when you pull those kids out of the school, you're pulling their funding with them. Um, so he was saying, you know, explicitly, um, here's, here's one way for us to get across that Rubicon, his words, um, and also that we can win this war in education. And that's something that Larry Arn, uh, who's the president of Hillsdale College, uh, also a, a deeply connected, longstanding right-wing activist. Um, you know, he used to, to head up the Claremont Institute, uh, which is this, this far right um, think tank out in California. Um, Eastman, it, it, Eastman memo. Exactly, John Eastman um, came out of Claremont as well as a lot of thought leaders on the right. Um, and Larry Arn says the, the same sort of rhetoric all the time. Um, you know, he would say, uh, you know, education is, is our vocation, you know, it is our trade, it's also our weapon. So they're very much approaching this as with this sense of, of this is a battle, this is war. And I, I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think, um, you know, they, they see uh, shaping the, the worldview of the next generation as a particularly key imperative. Um, you know, they, they blame a lot of what they refer to as quote unquote wokeness on the education system. And so they want to institute their own alternatives to that. Um, Hillsdale College uh, also led the effort um, when Trump instituted his 1776 project um, that you'll probably remember that was his answer to the well. Times right. 1619 mm -hmm. project. Um, you know, Hillsdale led that and they came up with this, you know, what historians who are much more learned than me, you know, called this very revisionist history of, you know, American history in general of you know, the significance of slavery, um, but also things like the civil rights uh, movement, you know, so the 1776 curriculum um, addresses the civil rights movement by saying, you know, it was, it was all like well and good, we're happy up until the March on Washington. Um, and every, everything that happened after that is a, a bastardization of what Martin Luther King wanted, um, which is not true. It's just historically not true. 
uh, but this is, you know, this is the lesson that they want to be taught uh, to students as well, uh, to teach them that progressivism, um, you know, both as, you know, the, the early 20th century movement, um, but also just as a political philosophy is fundamentally at odds uh, with the, the founding principles of the United States, um, you know, that there really wasn't intended to be a firm separation of church and state. Um, and that in general, when we, when we think about America, um, we should always think about the United States um, in, in terms of what it has overcome and not kind of the sins of its past. So they're basically saying like, we'll, we'll tell you about slavery, but, but just kind of leave it there in the past. Don't think about um, you know, the, the legacy that, that it has brought today. Um, so I think you know, controlling the worldview of the next generation is hugely important to them. Um, and then there's just all these ancillary benefits. I mean, if they attack public education, they get to attack and undermine teachers unions, um, right, which becomes right. kind of a, a big kind of, you know, corollary benefit uh, in terms of electoral politics for them. I, I, I like to talk about teachers. I, I live uh, 10 miles away from Gig Harbor, which is where uh, Rufo lives, Christopher Rufo. I was a school psychologist there, an administrator there. I have many dear, dear teachers there. The superintendent's new there. She's just an extraordinary superintendent. And um, I was talking to a teacher the other day about how how was school uh, how was school last year. This was over the summer, and he just just became ashen. He said it was just horrible. It was a combination of the kids having some emotional problems with the pandemic and so forth. But he said, what's worse is the number of teachers, a number of parents coming into my class, demanding my curriculum, demand, you know, uh, with this a very adversarial, angry uh, demeanor towards him and what he's teaching. He's, you know, he's advanced placement history teacher, teaches seniors. This is a... Facebook organization that I belong to is called Inform Parents of Washington. And I did a little research. There is an Inform Parent, uh, Inform Parents of Washington Peninsula School District. There's an Inform Parents of Washington, which is a nonprofit, about $5 million worth of uh, money goes through them. It is so well organized. It is a it's about critical race theory, uh, RUFO, the, the toolkit for concerned parents, uh, gender pronouns. They had a whole thing of school starting. Please tell us if the teachers talked about having gender pronouns. Um, the mask mandates, sex education, uh, just remarkably, they, they had a full lecture about how sex education is just grooming kids and that no one teaching sex education should be a regular teacher. They should be an interim teacher because when they're a regular teacher, they use it for grooming kids. It's just crazy. It's crazy. And they are controlling the narrative of what's going on in our public education. They're, they're, wow. they're, 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 it's, a, it's a powerful group very active in school boards, running school board members. And this is in a beautiful little community 10 miles away from me that's being overtaken by this. And, and that's what I think I like so much about your work. You talk about the school system and how it's being used 
but there's this underlying what did you call it the the self-described christian fascists that they don't think that's a bad term it's it's this group of people that are the three percenters uh election deniers um tell us about some of your work tracking that group of people as a subgroup of what's going on with this war on public schools sure um and wow i i, I had not heard that wrinkle about uh requiring anybody who teaches sex ed to be interim um yes that is that's yeah. news to I'll, me um, i'll send you the, i'll send you the link i'd love you to follow through that's that's that. really very interesting um yeah well i mean so there there was a a, a separate group that i wrote about that has self-described itself um whether tongue-in-cheek or not, uh, their own terms called themselves uh, Christian fascists. And, and this, is not, um, this is not the same category of people that I was talking about um, with Halesdale College uh, or, or the people kind of who are, are working at least in, in that sphere on you know, things like charter schools. Um, that's, that is not certainly you know, a, a self-description that they have applied to themselves. Um, but where this term came up, um, was in some reporting that I, I did with my, my colleague, uh, Ben Lorber, um, who is, uh, he works at Political Research Associates, um, which is a think tank that, that studies the right. And, and Ben is you know, probably um, the person in the country uh, who knows the most about a movement called the Groypers. Um, right, this is right. uh, the, the America First movement. Um, I, I think there are a lot of different organizations or, or groupings of people that, that use that term America first. Um, this is a, a particular uh, group. It's a very much a Gen Z kind of young internet um, oriented group. Um, they're, they're sort of the people who inherited the mantle of the alt-right after Charlottesville. Um, and so this, this, this Groyper movement, um, it, it represents an awful lot of, uh, you know, young 20-something, um, mostly white men, um, you know, not exclusively, but, but back in June in, in Texas, there was a really ugly anti-pride protest that took place at a gay bar in Dallas. Um, you, you probably saw news about this. I think this ended up right. becoming pretty national news that a lot of different people saw. Um, and what happened was, um, in, in Dallas, uh, this bar was called Mr. Mr. was having a, a family-friendly uh, drag queen brunch. Um, and so this was uh, you know, a very modified version of a drag queen brunch that they have every week um, in what is normally you know, their adults only bar. Um, and so they, they made it, they made this family friendly as, as a way to kind of celebrate the start of Pride Month. Um, so, you know, there were, the, the performers were wearing outfits that are no more risque than, you know, what a, a cheerleading performance would have. Um, these were not very sexualized performances. And it had things like musical chairs, um, you know, a chance for, for kids who attended with their parents to sort of, you know, strut and like strike a pose. Um, you know, if you watch, actually watch the videos and, and kind of not just what Tucker Carlson says is in the videos, you know, it's actually not, uh, you know, a sexualized performance. And yet, uh, you know, before the doors even opened, um, this bar just was surrounded uh, with dozens and dozens of far-right protesters um, 
you know, some of whom were, were being kind of, I guess, relatively well-behaved. They're just across the street, they're praying the rosary. Um, they think this is terrible, but they're not really being, uh, you know, violent or disruptive in the same way as, as the people who are more affiliated with this America First Graper movement were. Um, you know, because this became uh, a really pretty shocking scene. Um, members of this group were trying to force their way, physically force their way into the bar. Um, you know, they were verbally accosting um, all of, of the parents who were there with their young children, calling them groomers and pedophiles, um, making really vulgar remarks um, about, uh, you know, trans affirming medical care and things like that um, started. Some of them followed uh, both performers and parents uh, with young children back to their cars. So there's a lot of harassment going on, um, you know, and, and they're even kind of getting into it with police. Uh, you know, there's one video that shows one of the protesters, um, you know, taunting uh, a black police officer who's there to kind of keep the group separate, um, you know, saying that, you know, he must have been groomed as a child himself, basically, if he was there serving in this capacity. Um, you know, doing things like saying police ought to go inside this bar and shoot everybody in the head because that's what police are for. Uh, so, you know, this is a group that is, is behaving in a really kind of extremely, you know, confrontational um, and at times pretty violent way, calling for violence um, against all the LGBTQ people um, who are in attendance. Um, and it turns out this is also, you know, this was a group of people that have self-described as Christian fascists. Um, you know, Dallas and, and the Northern and Western Dallas suburbs have become this sort of hotbed for far right activity. Um, and we saw a fair amount of it in June during Pride Month. Um, There's a lot of reasons for that uh, after, you know, the well, they didn't concede the loss of the 2020 election, but after it just became inevitable, a lot of people on, you know, in mainstream uh, right-wing politics, but also on the far right uh, said like, okay, for, for the next, you know, foreseeable little while, let's focus our efforts locally. Um, you know, Steve Bannon said that, the Proud Boys said that, the Republican Party in general said that. So you've kind of got, you know, all the different levels of, you know, mainstream to extremism pretty covered. Um, so, you know, we saw a lot of Proud Boy type protests against um, Pride Month events in June. Um, we saw, you know, that that really, um, you know, stark. And I, uh, you know, I think Pat, this is kind of close to your neck of the woods. We we saw the example of the Patriot Front um, militia members who were arrested out of the back of a U-Haul van in, in June when, when they had gone to Coeur d'Alene um, and were planning to, to disrupt um, potentially violently uh, a pride event there because they were carrying you know, shields and some sticks and at least one smoke yeah, grenade. I, I sent you an article. Um, I was having dinner with a friend and he was on the phone. He got a phone call and he said, uh, I said, who was that? And he said, well, they're canceling our reservations in Port Townsend because they're expecting the three percenters to come up port towns is a sleepy little place up on the you know in the peninsula area sure. beautiful place and they're expecting to have the three percenters come up and and with all armed you know with their assault wow. rifles and stuff protesting the ymca because they had some conflict with a trans person at a ymca and you know thank god it wasn't violent 
but they literally shut down this shut down the whole town all the yeah. restaurants canceled the reservations so it's it's happening a, a lot and these people are um well, they're, they're zealots at, at a level that I think it, I, I haven't seen before. Well, maybe, maybe there have always been zealots like this, but they're, they're yeah. organized and very effective, and they're using both the schools and this whole trans issue, gay issue, grooming issue as a conduit and critical race theory as a conduit uh, to, to gain political control. And frankly, it's working. Is it working in Florida? Um, you know, I think there, there are a lot of people in Florida, of course, who are appalled by this, um, you know, but Governor DeSantis is having uh, a lot of success at just enforcing a lot of this stuff through. Um, right. You know, he's got a, a legislature that is pretty eager to, to do whatever he says. Um, I, I was just down in Florida this past week reporting on... Um, the National Conservatism Conference, which is a sort of highbrow elite uh, gathering of right-wing intellectuals. And DeSantis um, spoke there, um, sort of you know, bragging about all of his kind of greatest hits of, of the last few months um, and, and was just kind of greeted rapturously. You know, he was introduced as the future president of the United States. So, so far this seems to be working you know, both in terms of getting policies passed and also just really working politically for the people who embrace these these tactics. I'm wondering if 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 uh, you've looked into the economics of this. I mean, it seems to me that most of the things going on in this country, when you dig deeper, they turn out to have economic uh, incentives, economic motivation. For example, privatization of, of the school system, which takes it takes the form of charter schools where money is funneled into private entities or, or support for private schools. I know private schools aren't, aren't funded necessarily by, by, by us taxpayers, but elements of it are, for example, in Pittsburgh bus services for private schools are guaranteed as are other services that public schools traditionally gave. So if they participate in them, they're funded. But you, you, you see, What's at stake here, it seems to me, uh, the, the issues arise around social issues, around lifestyle issues. But underneath that, where the funding is coming from, the people behind it are urging this because there's money to be made in the same way that, that politicizing the criminal justice system produced massive private, uh, private prisons and, and funding of the police an enormous amount and so on and so forth. Do you see this? Do you see this incentive there as well? Do you see this economic incentive driving this? These, these players perhaps don't even know that they're being played. I mean, they're being played in terms of people who have economic interest and are driving it. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're spot on. I mean, and that's what I hear um, from public education advocates that I've been interviewing about some of these developments. Um, in late June, Arizona passed what is basically a universal voucher law. Um, so they have now become uh, the state with the most expansive sort of school privatization program in, in the entire country. Uh, it, it enables anybody who agrees to opt out of, um, opt their kids out of uh, public school, uh, they'll get a debit card um, that has just under $7,000 and they can spend it just about any way they want as long as it's education related. So they can, they can spend that on a private school. So that is state money. 
going towards a private school, they can spend it on a parochial school, a religious school, um, which then this is, you know, a workaround to allow for public funding, because that's public tax dollars on that debit card to go to a religious school. It can go towards a charter school, it can go towards homeschooling expenses, it can go for online tutoring, um, you know, it can go for this, this new sort of development that's called micro-schooling, which is when, uh, you know, a handful of parents pool their money and they, they hire a teacher who's only going to teach their, you know, five kids or their 10 kids. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this has just passed in Arizona, um, you know, immediately uh, conservative activists were calling for every other Republican controlled state to, to follow suit. Um, so that really is, uh, you know, I don't even know if, you know, some people say that's not even the ultimate agenda or the, the ultimate goal, but you know, that is certainly the big goal for now is this idea of universal school choice that, uh, you know, that there should be school vouchers. They should not be restricted only to low-income people um, or kind of different categories of people that it has been available for in the past. Um, you know, sometimes that's been, you know, people in in areas where the school districts, districts have received a failing grade um, or, you know, um, people on Native American reservations, people who, you know, have a parent who works for the military. But instead, this should just be available across the board to everybody. So universal school choice um, would then represent this massive wealth transfer of public money into privately run institutions. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, conservative politicians who are advocating for that are, are advocating for uh, those, those private or kind of alternative education options to not be held to any of the same accountability standards that they are piling up high on public schools. So if public schools are sort of kind of groaning under the weight of, you know, massive testing requirements that take months for teachers to, to teach to these big state tests that nobody likes, um, and kind of all kinds of different regulations, they're saying these should not apply to, to the private schools or, or certainly to kind of homeschooling parents or, or to micro schools. Um, so it's kind of deregulating and, and sending public funding to these private entities on one hand and kind of making the burden on public schools kind of ever greater. So I, I think, you know, yes, there is a, a huge kind of financial, uh, situation in play here and, and the stakes um, that, that these private education endeavors stand to you know, benefit from are, are pretty significant. And also, you know, a lot of the public education advocates who I speak to um, will make this point. They see all of the culture war issues that have been dominating the news for the last two years, the, the panics around critical race theory, um, you know, this, this really homophobic slur that, uh, you know, that teachers and school staff and librarians are, are grooming children. Um, you know, all of that kind of, the, the fights over mask mandates or, or vaccines or school closures related to the pandemic. They see all of that as, as really very directly related to, to this larger push towards school privatization. And, and sometimes the right will even basically admit this. Um, you know, your neighbor, Pat, Christopher Rufo, he right. went and spoke at Hillsdale College in April. Yeah, and yeah. he said, um, you know, 
I'm, this is not, I'm not remembering his exact quote, so this is a paraphrase, but in order to, to achieve universal school choice, to get to the place where everybody has, you know, the right that these parents at place, we have to operate from a premise of universal public school distrust. Um, so, you know, basically, the, the more dirt that, that you can kind of throw into the atmosphere around uh, public education, uh, the more attractive you are making this idea of universal school choice, even though when you really dig into it, um, the education that your kids will get is not going to be as good unless you're, unless you're already rich enough that you're just getting an extra $7,000 to defray the cost of the actually quality private education that you can already afford. I'd like I'd like to talk about I I uh, for years I've been subscribing to Empress, which is the Hillsdale College. I just love the fact that they have to waste a stamp on me. And and Christopher Rufo spoke there. Uh, he is um, boy, he's good. He's good. Uh, one of good. the one of my favorite uh, podcasters is Coleman Hughes. I don't know if you know Coleman Hughes. He's the uh, he's just a brilliant young black man that uh, went to Columbia, majored in philosophy. Uh, he's got a very good podcast. I respect him. Okay. He's just a brilliant young fellow. He had Christopher Rufo over, and Christopher Rufo rolled him, just rolled him, with classic um, straw dogging. Where he would, if you look at the the theory of critical race theory, which I'm sure you're familiar with, it, it's just a it's kind of an intellectual law school theory that even though the laws change against racism, you can continue to have racism occur. And how do you uh, within the legal system you can continue to have it, even though laws may have been changed. And he conflated critical race theory to, you know, gender studies and, you know, forced pronouns. And he, he uses it as this catchment for all of the woke complaints, legitimate woke complaints uh, that are going on in our society. And that becomes his mechanism. That becomes his ba battle cry, waving the red flag of critical race theory. And a person as smart as as Coleman Hughes was, you know, was confused by it and sucked into it and agreed. Yeah, there, there's something crazy going on in these schools indoctrinating our kids with all this critical race theory stuff. Well, I, I, know, I, amazing. I, I think one one and we we discussed this before. One of the problems is that there's not a lot of enthusiasm for the public school system because of its failings. And its failings are not the ones at the right point to. There are other failings. They're class failings. They're the fact that the, the, the school systems are so uh, unevenly, unequally funded from rich districts, like you know, some that you mentioned, and to poor districts. And they're, they're, they're also cut into by race in a way that's absolutely shameful. Now, right's not attacking that. But that's what makes it so hard to marshal people. Pittsburgh doesn't have a problem, as far as I know, I know some activists in the educational system here, of these crazy right-wingers that want to change curricula. What it does have is a lack of enthusiasm by the people that use the system, in that system, because it's been underfunded, radically underfunded. Deindustrialization has created that. 
politicians don't want to face this. They don't want to lead on, on, on education. They don't want to lead on the public school system. They don't want to defend it. Liberals don't want to defend it. And therefore, the right really has the open door to mobilize people and attack. And I don't think we've addressed that. I mean, I don't think we've addressed how we can mobilize people and create the enthusiasm for the public school system. You know, I'm an enthusiast. I, I lived it. It was my life. I went to public schools. My kids went to public schools. They've been successful. But for most people, it's a lot of disappointment when you have to stand in line overnight to get into a magnet school in Pittsburgh so that your child will have, a, uh, have an advantage over other public school uh, kids where that single mother can't do that. You've got a situation where you're not going to get a lot of enthusiasm for that system. Yeah. And uh, that, that's one of the, 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 the reasons that I think the defense of the public school system is so weak savage inequities yeah we still still you know still pertinent today and that's what you're talking about when you you know the the funding systems the inequity by zip code uh all these things deserve some criticism and create problems too no i i i think that's that's very true um and you know i mean we have been I also a proud public school graduate uh, with family members um, who have and do teach in, in public schools. I, I feel pretty passionately about it. Um, and I, I received a wonderful public education. Um, I also, you know, I know that a lot of schools have been underfunded for many years. And then, you know, when these sorts of solutions, whether it's it's charter schools or, or vouchers for private schools um, get introduced, you know, the, the sort of cherry picking that happens then compounds a lot of these problems. Um, you know, some of the public education advocates who I've spoken to, like put it this way, you know, school choice, like they always talk about school choice, um, but this ends up being uh, the choice of the school alternatives. So it ends up being the charter schools or the private schools, they're the ones that have the choice because they can, um, you know, sort of skim the, the cream of, of the student crop off, off of the top of, of you know, the, the public schools that they are, you know, essentially recruiting from. They can, um, you know, attract the, the highest performing students who have you know, the least special needs that, that require additional funding. And so, you know, they are, they're drawing this student away um, and they're drawing the funding that goes with that student away. Um, but, but the remaining public school, it's, you know, it's light bill, it's heating or air conditioning bill, depending where you're at in the country, it, that remains the same. And also what remains, uh, you know, most of the time are the students uh, you know, with more intensive needs, which are more expensive needs, um, you know, so you might end up having to, you know, in order to keep the lights and the heat or the AC on, maybe you have to cut uh, one of the teachers. And so now it's even larger class sizes for the remaining students who need already, you know, more investment, um, more kind of one-on-one -on -one attention than, you know, uh, these higher achieving lower need students who have now kind of been drafted off to to a charter school or a private school. And also if those school students end up, you know, being pulled away to one of those alternatives, if if they're not succeeding in that charter school, for example, 
um, it's pretty easy for them to get bounced out and, and sent back to a public school right. so that the charter school can maintain, you know, numbers that make it look like it is, um, you know, succeeding in educating students um, so in such a higher way uh, than the public schools that are, are dealing with, you know, public schools have to take everybody. Um, well, that, that was the Jeffrey Canada, the, the miracle of Jeffrey Canada, who had the charter schools in New York that when they actually looked at the number of kids he kicked out of the he kicked out of his school for discipline that's why he ended up having such good you know good results yeah. what 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 do you think about the um new york times uh, uh, article this sunday about the hasidic uh, schools in brooklyn i mean people who don't live in brooklyn don't know about the hasidic population and how powerful that is um but i thought that was um pretty interesting observation because that's you have the if you're allowing this public funds to come in without the accountability feature associated with it you're going to be getting problems like they're having educating these hasidic uh, uh, youngsters in their schools what was your thought about that i i i have to to beg off that one um i i went to this conference um I left four four o'clock in the morning Sunday, and then was just in conferences until ten o'clock at night uh, through through Tuesday night, and just got back home yesterday. So it's it's open. It's an open tab on my computer, um, <laughs> but I have not yet read it. So uh, oh, apologies. Good. It's I I've heard that it's excellent. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful article. Yeah, Greg, um, fascism. Uh, you, you know, wh where do you think this all fits in? with you know, the history of fascism and how it has occurred the past hundred years. Is this just a classic fascist element of the strong leader? And, you know, 75% of the people think, uh, of Republicans think the election was stolen. I mean, that's, something's going on here that's distorting uh, people's perceptions and it's a powerful force. Is this just Fascism 101? What, what are your thoughts about that? I think, I think fascism kind of obscures what's going on. The term fascism obscures it. It's not really that useful. It has a historical place. It has a historical meaning. Um, it tend to, tends to be uh, a rise when we have a powerful left as a response to it. This is not that different from the right, the crazy right, the, the extreme right that we've known throughout history. And uh, when it when it when uh, politics become corrupted, as our politics are, you get these extremes. You get these extremes arising, and I think we're in just such a time. That's one reason the education is being politicized. That's one reason why, as we did on Tuesday, the legal system is so politicized. In this country, you can't have a conversation really anymore. I mean, we're lucky our guests are all civilized and. Uh, interesting people and, and serious people, but it's very hard to have a conversation with people. That's how, that's how broken our system is. We tend to blame each other. We tend to blame, to me, a lot of the problem, we, we go back to something that uh, uh, we discussed earlier about, uh, it's a two-party system. When you have a two-party system, that, that's the allowable discussion, discussion. Everything is polarized around that and, and we fight. And we don't really do much constructive, in my view. So, well, I think if you look at—I mean, for example, I wanted to ask—I wanted to ask about uh, Bob Jones University. 
because that goes back further. The question, my question would be, to what extent is this Hillsdale a more secular version of that? Is, is Christian fundamentalism a little bit on the wane and, and Hillsdale's a more secularized version? Or are they really the same kind of thing? Because we've had Bob Jones in the past and that's been a leading force on the right, educating young crazy right-wingers. I, I mean, I think it's, it's, it strikes me as, um, you know, definitely a different flavor of conservative Christianity. I mean, Bob Jones University, you know, always had this reputation as, uh, I think, well, the actual nickname, the fortress of fundamentalism, um, you know, and, uh, you know, that this was fundamentalism in a way that was, was not even being used as, you know, a slur or kind of any derogatory, you know, con, uh, implication from from outsiders. I mean, this was Bob Jones, um, senior himself. Uh, you know, would would have these kind of this long running uh, conflict with with Billy Graham, who was known as kind of more in 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 the evangelical mode. Um, you know, just over kind of what is the right way to, to be a very conservative Christian. Um, you know, Hillsdale College, um, its Christianity is, its conservative Christianity is, is a big and important part of it. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's, I wouldn't describe it as, as fundamentalist. Um, and it also, it draws conservative religious students from uh, from other traditions uh, as well. I mean, one of the uh, Hillsdale affiliated charter schools that I reported on um, based in Orange County, California uh, was, was started by a man um, who, you know, he and his wife are both pretty connected to pretty right-wing politics. Um, you know, he was a prominent uh, COVID skeptic who was affiliated with uh, that group, America's Frontline Doctors, his wife, uh, is on staff uh, with the California Policy Center, which kind of eventually is part of the, the group that implements Alex model legislation. Um, they're Jewish and, and they got involved with Hillsdale because they sent their kid there. Um, I don't think that that would, I, I can't say it never happened at Bob Jones, um, but I, I think that's a lot less likely to happen at a place like Bob Jones. But what Hillsdale really is, I mean, is it's connected. Um, you know, they, they have a, a campus in, in Washington, D.C. They, they draw people like Clarence Thomas, um, Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's yeah. wife. She built their Washington, D.C. campus. Um, you know, they are hand in hand uh, with, with groups like the Heritage Foundation or um, the Federalist Society. Um, so they just, they are operating kind of at a level where, um, they're kind of, they're, you know, a pretty elite level within Republican politics. Um, you know, it was described, I think, in Vanity Fair that there was a revolving door between Hillsdale's Washington campus and the Trump administration, um, which is just, again, not something that is true of Bob Jones University. Yeah, and your work in Orange County Classical Academy, I, I you know, I wasn't aware of it. And uh, I streamed a couple of their videos and the, the Dr. Jeffrey Barkey, you know, came up who, who you mentioned well he 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 shows up on he shows up on the facebook page of you know informed parents and he shows up everywhere and yep. um you know he, things are connected it's all it's all connected 
you know, this is this is what I think why your work is so important. As much as I follow this and Greg and I follow this, after reading your article and then going through and looking at uh, the Political Research Associates, Ben's work, which by the way, I'm going to link to, he that is remarkable. That's a website that uh, tracks all of these things in a very good way. And you, you, you used to write for that website too, did you? Or were you? I, I was actually the editor there. Um, oh my goodness! For That's... about six and a half years until this past, until uh, I came to Salon in January. I knew nothing about this, and this is just such good quality. I, none of this is being covered by my local paper. None of this is being, you know, none of the phenomenon. This kind of cultural phenomenon some maybe the more of the fringe hysterical things are are being covered but not this whole kind of uniform consolidated movement that you you lay out a roadmap for pretty pretty accurately and it's important it it's important you know it's it's going to elect our next president santa you know if if we don't really see how it operates I, you're just doing great work i don't that's all i can say i don't know you're doing very good work. Thank you so much. And I, are you have any books in the books in the offering, or are you too busy doing your journalism? Uh, I, I I don't currently. Um, I have an idea I'm kicking around. So knock on wood. <laughs> good, good. Greg, any final thoughts? No, I just wanted to express my appreciation as well. I really uh, enjoyed this and and learned a great deal. And I I urge you to, and I'm sure you will continue with this and. Uh, We'll, we'll enjoy the fruits of your work. Uh, do you, do you, do you, uh, wh what do you see as, I don't want to dig deeply into this, but what do you see as a kind of response or answer to this phenomenon? I mean, well, if we're talking about um, education, uh, well, I, well, for one thing, I think that I didn't really realize that there was such a, a well-developed and in, interconnected kind of series of assaults on public education myself until um, you know, something that, that I was looking on happened to kind of lead me down some of these rabbit holes over the last two years. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think people who are, you know, full-time proper education reporters have been covering this stuff, like Jennifer Berkshire, for example, um, you know, has, has been onto this uh, for a lot longer. But I, I think, um, you know, that that indicates a lot of people have not thought about you know, this in, in this way as I had not until the, the last two years. I mean, I think if people um, kind of sort of became more alert and attuned uh, to, to the fact that all of these things that we're seeing, kind of the, the, the CRT stuff, the, the groomer stuff, um, which again, it's just, it's so offensive on so many levels. Um, uh, you know, the, the proposals to kind of ever, you know, create ever more like wide um, opportunities, um, make it ever easier for people to just leave public schools. If, if people kind of learn more to, to, to put these things together, to, to see that this is, these things are all happening, um, you know, as part of a, a complex and, and well-developed plan, I, I think it will bother them because I think a lot of people really do for for all of the the complaints that you know they may have um, from time to time about public schools, people do not want them to go away. Um, you know, I mean, this is a point that's been made to me by by many people. So I'm, 
you know, kind of repeating this uh, received wisdom a bit, but, you know, public schools remain the center um, of, of communities, particularly in, in smaller communities, in rural communities. That is the, the center of, of town. Um, you know, it is, it is where people see each other. It's kind of the thing that binds the town together. And, uh, you know, people on an individual level are not looking at, uh, you know, their family members and friends and neighbors who are teaching at these schools and thinking, oh yeah, um, my cousin, the groomer um, who works at the public school. I mean, so if people, you know, put these things together and then also think, um, you know, in a less abstracted way about like what it means um, to be signing on to these things, to be saying that, you know, the health teacher who's teaching sex ed, uh, as I've just learned from you, um, you know, that, that they need to be a part-time or temporary employee because otherwise you're giving them access to kids they are going to groom them. I mean, I, I just, I can't really think of many things that are, are more offensive than that, considering the work that teachers do for the pay that teachers do it for. Um, I, I just think if people understand kind of what the end goal is, like what all of this is aiming towards, I, I, I think it will piss them off. Um, yeah. And I think that it could spur them to action. I'll, I'll send you a follow up and an email. I'll send you that K-12 public schools are grooming Conrad Woodall, who uh, turns out to be have a master's degree in, um, I don't know, something psychology and he's community college teacher. But that was, you know, write your legislatures. You can't have regular teachers teaching sex ed because they're that's how they groom kids. I, I don't make this stuff up. I wish I did, but I don't. So you, you've just been great, Jennifer. I mean, I mean, so I'm sorry, Catherine, you, I was thinking of Jennifer. I'm, I'm flattered. I'm flattered. <laughs> I called you Jennifer. That's a, that's a great Freudian slip. But uh, anyway, you've been, you've been great. I just, I'm going to keep watching your, your work and following your work. I hope you keep writing and um, you're doing, you're doing God's work in this, this particular area for sure. You are. So thank you for coming today. Thank you. Thank you both so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. Great. Thank you.